Welcome to the For Love and Money podcast, the show where business and social purpose meet to inspire a movement for positive change. Here's your host, Carolyn Butler-Madden. Today's guest heads up a business that I'm in love with, um, as anyone who knows me knows very well, Patagonia. Dane O'Shaughnessy is Country Director of Patagonia Australia and New Zealand, an organisation that has been driven energetically by its purpose for many years and who many people describe as a poster child for purpose. Dane, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, look, I'm going to kick off with a question I'm asking of all of our guests, and that is, what's your perspective on the role of love in business? Um, well, when you when you said this to me to have a think about it ahead of time, I admit I had to get my head around, um, you know, what you were asking, you know, because um, I don't really use the word love all that often in business, um, or I use it fairly liberally, um, but whether it's used intently or not. So I had a bit of a think about it, and I guess... Um, for me, it boiled down to, you know, ultimately being about people, you know, and the connection that we have with each other. And that love, I think, describes this, um, you know, reason that we connect um, because we want to, not because we have to, you know, and, and what, you know, so what drives that kind of um, interaction. Um, I think, you know, business is ultimately a tool for, people's, for people and communities, you know, to create shared value together, to exchange value. Um, but I also think, you know, as a you know, re relatively you know, young person in the context of history, you know, business and corporations have really, um, I guess, created a place where, you know, love and ethics and kind of interpersonal um, morals can be pushed to one side in the pursuit of profit, you know. So I think when I was coming back to this word love and, you know, how, how does it work in this context, whether you use the word love, purpose, sustainability, circularity, all of these things, I think, are words that we're trying to kind of like bring into the kind of this very um, dry and clinical kind of business language that we have as a way to kind of like reconnect us with the sort of social contract we have with each other and that well-being that we require um, as a community and as individuals um, to live a happy, you know, and fulfilling life. I think that's a great way to describe it. And it's so interesting, isn't it? I think all of us um, in business are so subconsciously shaped um, by, by what we've experienced over the last few years that anything that's personal or reeks of love or empathy or humanity in business feels a little bit, feels a bit jarring, I guess, um, because yeah. it, it, it is siloed. It's kind of like, no, business is this professional in fact it's probably been seen as a sign of weakness for many years yeah. you know and and really like you know putting people first is um one of the most you know important things we can do as you know business leaders serving our colleagues to to help create success individually and collectively 100 percent, 100 percent. um so look for anyone i i, I guess Everyone I know knows about Patagonia. Everyone seems to know what Patagonia stands for. But what I've learnt is people go, yeah, yeah, we know. But what I've learnt is not everyone knows the depth of what Patagon of who Patagonia is. And I talk a lot um, in, in my book, For Love and Money, about identity, purpose being identity. It's about who you are, what you stand for, and what you care about enough to show up for day after day. 
Um, so can you share for those listeners who might not um, understand Patty, Patagonia's role, um, who you are, what your purpose is, is, and, you know, what inspires you guys? Well, um, yeah, Patagonia is relatively new in the market in Australia. I think it's been here for about 10 years, so it's not an uncommon question. I used to get for a long time, you know, where do you work? I said Patagonia, they say, what's that? So um, it's a story I've had to retell a lot. And it's a complex company, as, as you're alluding to. It's not just a company that you know, has a myopic pursuit of you know, making money um, and that's, that's the end of it. So often I kind of think about, well, who's, who's asking the question? You know, so I feel like you know, in, in this context, it's probably just important to say, hey, primarily our business is that we make outdoor clothing. You know, we make gear that you need to enjoy nature. And I think it's through that kind of pursuit in nature that you know, over a long period of time, we've come to understand our impact on nature, but also its value to us as humans. Um, you know, we've also expanded our business into, you know, making food as sustainably um, with as little impact as we can. We've got, you know, other business ventures and impact investment funds. But I loved a, an, an esteemed colleague of mine, Rick Ridgway, once described, um, you know, the answer to that question as we're in the business of making stuff people need to live, clothes and food. And I thought that was just a really neat way of sort of like packaging, packaging it up. So it's not so much like what do we do in business, but like, you know, how do we do our business that probably people get most um, interested in. And, you know, it's probably the best, I think, um, way to kind of bring people up, up to, you know, how, how I feel about the company is just to kind of talk a little bit about its history. You know, so it's been around for around about 50 years. The roots are in the mountains. Our founder, Yvonne Chouinard, was a mountaineer, a very sort of, you know, pioneering mountaineer, climbing, you know, many places for the first time um, in, the, in the late 50s and 60s, um, and was a real kind of, you know, um, you know, I guess, you know, not an outcast of society, but certainly someone who found his, you know, love of that pursuit and nature is, you know, all encompassing and really, you know, over time, you know, wanted to figure out how he could just, you know, spend as much of his time climbing and as little of his time working. Um, so, so that led to him, you know, he, he was a blacksmith by trade and he started to make his own climbing gear. That was how the whole company started making pitons for climbing mountains. So, you know, and it's an interesting story too, because one of the, I guess, the first foundational things about, you know, Patagonia's view on businesses have an impact on the planet. And as when we know we've got an impact, we I guess have a responsibility to minimise it and think about how we can be restorative in our interaction um, with each other and the planet um, was, was a climbing experience. And back in those days when people climbed mountains, they'd climb mountains with these iron kind of spikes that they'd hammer into the rocks. And, you know, you'd hook your rope up and you climb to the next one and off you kind of go. Um, but you would leave them, you would leave them there, you know, and the next person who climbed, climbed that route would, you know, be seeing you know, the remnants of someone who'd come before them, you know, so their experience of nature was already kind of, you know, impacted by, you know, someone who had come prior. Um, they would be damaging the rocks, you know, essentially with each thing getting nailed in, the crevices would become wider and different from the next. Um, so, you know, upon realising that, um, it was, I guess, it was an early kind of indication that, you know, we have an impact. And, um, you know, he wrote a famous essay about, you know, that was called Clean Climbing. It was in the very first Patagonia catalogue that talked about, you know, how we could um, do things with a lighter footprint. Um, Yvonne, after that, innovated a, a brand new 
climbing piton essentially that was made out of aluminium that was reusable that could be inserted into the rock could be used and, and taken back out without damaging the rock as a way of like responding to that observation um, but it was also a pretty big and bold business decision you know back in those days you could make an iron piton for about a penny and he started making these aluminium chocks and they're about a dollar dollar ten or a dollar twenty yeah, wow. each back in the 50s so it was a really big shift in in how people experience that sport um they also decided that that year they were going to stop making iron pitons completely and move everything to this new this new you know aluminium chalk um which really was going to either be you know the making or the breaking of his business um but it was a, a commitment that they made and i guess maybe a first lesson in you know, taking a bold move that they felt was, you know, not just better for the experience and the pursuit of what you're doing, but also reducing our impact um, and it having a somewhat successful business outcome. That year, the, the, the climbing scene nearly changed overnight and everyone started moving on to these new kind of um, climbing, you know, um, pitons and chocks made out of aluminium. Fantastic. So another really, you know, another, the foundational story that I think um, really describes, you know, the company's learnings and experiences, you know, in the way that's helps, you know, ground us to where we are today is our journey to using organic cotton. Um, so back in the in the eighties, um, we opened a new store in, um, you know, New York around New York area. Maybe our employees um, in that store started to get sick. Um, and what we found, you know, upon closing the store and trying to find out what was going on, but was the chemical fumes coming off the cotton clothing that in a poorly ventilated space that we're making our employees unwell. Um, and that really led to this kind of, you know, um, evaluation of, you know, cotton as a material that we were using in our supply chain and making our products. Something that was a natural fibre that we all felt was at the time, you know, a, a, a a great alternative to um, synthetics and other things, you know, for certain purposes. Um, but what we found upon that research was that, you know, cotton is a highly um, chemical intensive, um, you know, growing process when, when grown under traditional, um, you know, conventional agriculture methods. Um, yeah. So, Yvonne, you know, this is, you know, some years on from, you know, these other learnings, you know, over the years, kind of made a, a big decision that, you know, within one year, the company was going to move away from conventional cotton wholeheartedly and move to 100% organic cotton, or we were going to get out of the business of, you know, making, you know, cotton clothing. Um, and that was a really big and bold kind of, you know, call to make. We had a big business at the time, you know, using cotton as a material. Uh, we found certainly that, um, you know, the staff weren't really happy about it. Not only do they have to do their day jobs and, you know, um, you know, design the range and, you know, develop, you know, the, the products and the materials, but they also had to kind of go and find and create a new supply chain for organic cotton, which at, in, in, 19, in the, in the 90s um, certainly wasn't um, necessarily a readily available um, material. Um, so with that kind of like, you know, somewhat staff revolt on their hands, uh, it's a great kind of example of, you know, how to bring people along with you is, is how they responded to that issue, which was taking our employees out on tours, tours of farms, you know, and they take out busloads at a time and they go and visit a conventional cotton farm. They drive out to these farms. They could really smell the pesticides that were really being in use. There was a lack of, you know, um, biodiversity, bird life, 
and other kind of creatures that would you know you would normally expect to see around a farm because everything was really just kind of you know plonked in a bit of in a bit of dirt sprayed with water and chemicals so it will grow and then harvested and repeated so that desert that 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 process of um growing was very much um an industrial one after visiting those farms they would take the employees out to an organic cotton farm and you know that my colleagues described that experience who are still the company today is just just transformational to, to to pull up at a farm after being at an industrial kind of you know agricultural um, place and to hear birds chirping and to see bugs on the ground and to sort of see the difference in the soil and where these where these um you know these plants were growing really kind of was just a night and day experience and i think whilst everyone knew this process of shifting to organic cotton was going to be a huge pain in the in, in the backside, um, they all knew it was a worthwhile and, and the right thing to do. Um, so that I think through that experience and really helping employees understand why that was important, um, we were able to kind of you know, really bring, bring others along and, and make that transition. And we've been using 100% organic cotton you know, since 1996 um, and, and when that company made the decision to make the change. That's a fantastic story and I hadn't heard that one. Um, and yeah, I. I love that it shows how, you know, you can, you can take a negative, you can take it the, the way they initially responded and then you invest in educating them, bringing them along the way. And, um, and yeah, it, you, you turn it around. The other thing, um, when you shared the story about um, how Patagonia started with the climbing pitons, uh, for me, that's, it shows that, Yvonne started the company, um, it was a purpose-led company from, from the word dot. You know, he, he created them because he, he wanted, you know, he, he, he wanted yeah. to create a change in the world, right? Um, but it well, comes I think down to... I, I, would, I would actually say that, you know, we use that language today, but I think, you know, back in those days, it was just, you know, there, there was an idea, I guess, of, of, of people having... Um, you know, consideration for more than just their own personal gain. You know, and I think in Yvonne's case, it was about nature. He was spending yeah. so much time in nature. You know, it was something that he cared deeply about. He's a passionate environmentalist and conservationist to this day. And I think that's what's driven him. You know, and I think this idea of like purpose must is describe something. You know, so what is purpose describing rather than purpose being a purpose unto itself? And I think that's just such a wonderful question to pose folks is like, or, you know, don't have a purpose, what is your purpose? Yeah, every, every organisation has a purpose. For many, yeah. it's to make money. Um, and yeah. his founding purpose was to do something better, yeah. make something better, make the climbing experience better because he cared, loved yeah. about nature and the climbing experience, and, and that's what it comes down to. It's, um, it's I, I, I talk about often we're all so busy particularly in marketing, which is my background, we're also busy thinking about how do we make better things? But why not stop and ask the question, are you actually making things better? Because making better things doesn't mean you're making things better. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, so let's talk about um, Patagonia's people and its culture, because from what I've, from what I've learned about the company, it, it's, it's very different. Um, yeah, let's talk about Patagonia's people and the culture because it seems to have a very unique culture. 
before you've been at Patagonia for quite a number of years now, but before that you were in the retail space as well. Did you like, could you feel a difference once you joined Patagonia between, um, you know, organizations you'd worked at before and Patagonia or was it quite similar? I think there were lots of um, common things and, you know, Patagonia is a private company. I was lucky enough to you know, work for a lot of my formative years at you know, Ripco, which is an iconic Australian private, what at the time was a private brand that was doing amazing things, you know, lifestyle, cult, and, you know, setting, you know, surf culture, which was, you know, really exciting to be part of. So there was a lot of common ground and a lot of things that I think attracted to me to this business that, you know, were similar. Um, but I do think what makes Patagonia so unique is its culture. You know, and the fact that its culture is, you know, set by, you know, shared values, shared interests, but led by employees, not by founders, not by managers. It's not this sort of top-down imposition of culture. It is a result of the, the eclectic bunch of people that kind of come together and grow together, learn together and respect each other. You know, usually you hear about, you know, fantastic companies, you know, the founder story is super central to it. And I think Yvonne's story is absolutely connected and part of Patagonia's journey. Um, but but the, the reality is he's long practiced his own version of an MBA, you know, management by absence. You know, I think he is an agitator. He is a um, an amazing person to, to bring out the best in others, not through micromanagement, but certainly through um, giving people opportunity. And I think that's really what sets the tone at this company more than any other that I've worked at is you've got a really bold mission, like our, our new company mission, only, only two years old now after living in the old one for 30 years, is we're in business to save our home planet, which is a really, really big, bold thing to say if you are going to try and live up to that. You know, we've got amazing values. You know, we want to build the best product. We want to cause unnecessary harm. You know, we use business to protect nature and we're not bound by convention. And I say those things not to try and reel off what you might see in the tea room, as you might in many companies, but because those things are the moral compass to every business decision that we make. And when we start trying to meet those standards and hold ourselves to those aspirations, um, it creates this wonderful um, urgency and it creates this sort of wonderful camaraderie that we kind of you know, get, to, get to pull together with. Yeah, brilliant. And I, I observed like a few years ago, your mission statement were those were three of those four, um, values, four yeah. values that that you talked about. And for me, it um, it suggests that I I guess it's it's a journey, isn't it? Um, because now your mission statement is so bold, so ambitious, um, and it, it it almost feels like. Um, and I find this when I when I work with my clients as well. You need to build confidence in what you can achieve before you can go for the really big guns and do something that bold. Um, but yeah, it's it's a journey, and and you guys have been treading a path towards that big bold ambition for quite some time now. Yeah, there's lots of little things along the way too. You know, and, you, and we look back, it's just it seems like a lot because it's fifty years of lots of little things. Um, and maybe it's with that kind of, you know, that muscle and experience that the company has the means in which to, to shoot for more. Um, but we're still a small business, I think, you know, globally speaking. Um, we know that we have to position our impact in places where we can make the most difference, where we can be the tipping point on, on important things. Um, and one of our biggest strengths is, you know, is trust. 
is to convene parties together to work through issues. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's it, things like, you know, being totally committed to transparency in, in how we do our business and being accountable for our mistakes as well as, as well as our successes that have given us this unique position, you know, primarily, I think first in North America, but that influence is just growing around the world wherever we do business. And I observed during that time um, that, or I think I might have read stories about it, when you made that, when Patagonia made the transition from cotton to organic cotton, there were a lot of critics who said, yeah, yeah, this company holds itself up to be, you know, um, in service to to the environment, and yet they have been creating damage through cotton. And yet what I observed is those critics were few and far between. There were more people who, because of your transparency, seemed to say, yeah, okay, well, they're trying to do the right thing. Let's let's support them and help them do that. Absolutely. I think there's, you know, those stories I shared aren't my stories. They're sort of company myths and, you know, things that we kind of draw upon. But I remember when I started in the company, you know, you know nine or ten years ago, one of the first visits that I made to, to the campus in North America was for a big sales meeting where they release a new you know, range and everyone comes together and we have a great party and we talk about the year ahead. And um, one of the, you know, again, coming from selling clothes and, you know, people enjoying kind of life, lifestyles or outdoor pursuits or whatever that might be, that's just really one dimension of what we do. And I, and I remember when the big story for that, for that season was this, um, you know, new concept called traceable down. So down are, are feathers that we put in puffy jackets. So they're, they're somewhat ubiquitous now, um, puffy jackets in Australia, but, you know, it's, it's, they weren't always so. And they released this, all of our products were now going to be made with, you know, traceable down, which is our own certification that, you know, geese whose feathers um, we use for our garments weren't coming from geese who were live plucked, nor were they force fed for fagua kind of, you know, food production. And it was a bit shocking just to even hear that sitting back and watching this video in a, in a big hall full of people that, you know, I hadn't even considered the idea that, you know, people would be live plucking geese and why would they do that? The reason is, is because if you live pluck them, they can grow feathers again and you can pluck them again. So there's this horrible kind of animal, animal cruelty to the whole piece. Um, and, that, you know, that, that our company would even be kind of talking about this. You know, this is, these are the products we make and we're kind of revealing, you know, what are some of the biggest risks and worst kind of, a, you know, outcomes that could be um, connected to them. So it was a bit of a startling moment. Um, but the story that sort of sits behind that is about three years earlier, um, the company was approached by a UK-based, um, you know, animal rights group called Paws. And they said, hey, we think that in your supply chain that you are using products that are coming from farms that are live plucking and other things. And so at the time, you know, the company, instead of trying to sweep it under the rug and kind of, you know, distract and create some kind of PR spin doctor kind of magic, wrote an article about it and published it and told all our customers about, you know, this, what a concern that, that's been raised. Um, and then they laid out the steps on how they were going to find out what was going on and what we we're going to do about it. And so from that moment, you know, the company went on this journey to understand, you know, where the risks were. We found that there were nine layers of supply chain before we got to the farm. So there was a lot of disconnection risk and, you know, th things could definitely go wrong. They did find, however, that, that there was no evidence that we were sourcing feathers from those farms, but the, but the risk of it happening was enough that we felt like we needed to do something more substantial. 
That led to the, to the setup of this traceable down certification that is third party independent of Patagonia that comes in and audits and certifies the farms. To me, that was a real um, you know, personal moment of, of watching a couple of things. Number one, you know, you know, how you deal with a crisis can be one of your biggest strengths. You know, so dealing with it as a person would, owning up to it, talking about what you're going to do about it. Generally, you'll find people are pretty understanding if you follow through on, on saying that. I think companies often find themselves in this space where they're trying to create this unattainable perfection that must last last forever. Um, the other thing I learned is that, you know, whilst it was totally counterintuitive to everything you learn at business school, it's also free and available to every single business out there. You know, doing the right thing is absolutely free. And if you do it enough, then perhaps over time you'll build a reputation like Patagonia has that can be part of your brand equity, your business value, the things why people come and buy your goods ultimately. Doing the right thing is free. I love that. That's, um, and that's an extraordinary story about, uh, about Traceable Down. And I think that that's a, that's a massive learning for any business leader because you're right. The default is if, you know, if, if there's something like that that comes up on the radar, the default is quick, hunker down, cover it up. Um, and how do we manage this risk management? But what you're saying is there are real benefits in approaching this humanly, you know? That's the thing. Like, there's no real secret pedagogy because you, what you see is what you get, you know? And I think that ultimately is why people like it. They sort of see something in that that they wish they would see more of out there in the business world when really, you know, businesses are set up marketing first product later how are we going to get create demand so we can fill it and kind of create more money and i think um you know when we worked for a company that ran an ad that said don't buy our products it was a real seminal moment and something that's quoted in business schools around the world now um you know i feel like there's just a sort of a beautiful simplicity and elegance into that that again is available to all but it is counterintuitive to what's really motivating you and perhaps you know we're lucky after 50 years of being in business that we have the means under which to kind of you know, push the boundaries on that a little further. It's, it's actually ridiculously simple, isn't it, if you think about it? And, um, and I guess, again, it comes back to the people you attract. So, you know, what kind of people work at Patagonia? How, how, does, how does Patagonia's culture and values and purpose, how does it impact who it attracts and how long they stay and you know, um, how they work while they're there. Can you share a bit of that? Yeah. Well, it, it attracts all sorts of people. I think there's certainly folks who are super attracted by our environmental mission and that, you know, have a real personal, you know, phase of their life where they feel connected to that. You know, and we get a lot of, you know, outreach and applications of people who just want to work here, no matter the job, no matter their background, overqualified, underqualified. And that's just, you know, testament to, again, that sort of... Um, you know, love that people feel for the brand's kind of, you know, mission and, and, and purpose. Um, but, you know, we have diverse, diverse employees, you know, we, we have all sorts of, you know, backgrounds, you know, I think you have to share our values to somewhat be happy here. You know, I think Rick, that fellow I mentioned earlier, once described it to me, which I thought was very elegant, it can be the best or the worst place you've ever worked, depending on what you care about. You know, if you are hungry, ambitious, and really, you know, motivated by winning, or, you know, that short-term financial success, then this can be an incredibly slow and stifling and unrewarding place to work. However, if you if you are, you know, aligned with the company's values, you can really feel like, you know, 
you're contributing to something that you care deeply about and is what a wonderful way to kind of, you know, you know earn your living. Yeah, you know, so I think, you know, we are diverse. You know, it's not just like, do you care about the environment? Do you like outdoor sports? You know, I always think about, I remember again, like on that first trip to, to North America and, and meeting a bunch of, of employees up there, meeting a fellow who worked in the finance department and his passion in life was restoring vintage fire engines. An interesting hobby, you know, like the last thing that you would have to see in, a, in an outdoor adventure style kind of company. But again, you realise that it's, it is through the the passion for, you know, that, that people bring to their life and that they can apply through their jobs, both technical expertise, you know, or, you know, um, mission-centric kind of, you know, um, moral kind of questions we encounter day to day that really kind of binds us all together. And there's a real healthy respect, I think, for, for, for having that diversity in the room to help, you know, get, get, get better outcomes. Is it true you let your people go surfing during work hours? Yeah, well, I think um, it's a fantastic name for the company's book, Let My People Go Surfing. And, and the answer is yes. Um, I think Yvonne describes in the book is like, you, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, plan your day. You can't tell your calendar when the surf's going to be good. You kind of got to go when it's going to be good. However, you know, again, we have responsibilities to our colleagues, you know, to getting the job done. And I think, you know, we just give the responsibility and onus to, to the individual to say, hey, if you can do it, go for it. But if you, someone's relying on you like that, that's important too. Uh, it goes right back to what you said in the beginning, Dane. It's about it's about caring about people and and um, and and I, letting people do what they do, trusting them, and that comes down to making sure you got you've got the right people in the organisation in the first place. You talked about you've talked about Rick Ridgeway a fair bit, and I um, I went to a Patagonia movie event um, several years ago. It was um, the screening of Takaina. And Rick Ridgway was um, there. They had a panel afterwards and they had Rick Ridgway and Bob Brown and a couple of other people. But there was something he said that really, um, that really got to me. And he talked about how you need to fall in love with nature and you need to let it get into your soul and you need to walk in nature to be able to do that. And he said only when you let it get into your soul is you know, that is when you will care enough about it to protect it, which is what we need to happen, obviously. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just so, it was incredible to hear um, a business leader talk like that with such passion and such conviction. And I think that's the thing that attracts so many people to the brand. I just wanted to share a little story when I pivoted my business away from my marketing agency to do what I do today, um, I was starting from scratch, right? Uh, I didn't even really know exactly what I was creating. And I went through a couple of year, a couple of really lean years. And, you know, my family and I, we had to live so small, you know, huge Northern Beaches mortgage. And it's incredible how small you can live when you have to and, you know, credit to my family for letting me pursue my passion to do that and through all this time I wrote my first book I wrote about Patagonia in that book I talked a lot of events I spoke at I talk about Patagonia and yet I could never afford to pay for Patagonia because it's not cheap right um, but the people who buy Patagonia are prepared to pay more because of how you do business um, 
So when eventually I got to the stage where we had some money, Christmas presents, that first Christmas, I bought everything in our local Manly Patagonia store um, because that's what I cared about and that's what the people around me cared about. And I guess that I share that story really, again, as a demonstration of how um, loving, loving a brand, loving a brand and what it stands for and wanting to support that brand's mission. And that's what that's how people show up for you, your customers, your employees and your partners as well. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you for your custom. <laughs> oh, um, my pleasure. And look, I would say... Sorry it took know, so long. <laughs> no, and I would say, you know, and you're probably experiencing this now is, you know, our products are priced at the price that we think is reasonable for what you're getting, you know. And when you're comparing a jacket that is made as cheaply as possible and then charged at a rate which is what the market can bear, that is all about maximising profit for the company that's making it. When we make our products, there's a lot of value that you don't see, not just in you know the, the traceable down or the recycled materials or the low footprint, but also making sure that the people making those goods are paid a fair and you know um, living wage to make that sort of stuff. The other thing that I think Patagonia does really well is its focus on quality. Mm. Quality, you know, I think this is where the, the economics of you know, buying clothes are really interesting. So when people go, wow, your jacket's twice the price of a competitor's puffy jacket, we're like, yeah, but... How long is it going to last? And you send it back, we'll repair it for you for free. So suddenly this jacket in which you paid, you know, $300 for, not $150 for, last you 10 years, not two years, the economics of you having to rebuy something over and over again um, are really interesting. Um, so I always, you know, I, I think one of the other kind of really simple and elegant um, design principles of Patagonia is environmentalism through our products. Of course, we are pursuing, you know, the least amount of, harm and impact and footprint we can with the materials that we use one of the most simple things we can do is make it last a long time keep it a landfill don't yep. buy another one don't make another one and I, when i heard that kind of like perspective for the first time i was like how simple and how kind of commonsensical um it's, if that's all we've got to do and start to kind of like reduce how much we're kind of like making throwing in the landfill fill with it's you know no fashionable or no longer you know um functioning then you know that's something we can again can all do yeah yeah it, it turns everything on its head but like you say it's so simple and you mentioned elegance before and and that comes through in spades um, can you share some of the examples of organisations you've partnered um, with in service of um, saving our home planet? I think partnerships really for our company began first and foremost supporting not-for-profit environmental groups. And that really started with us, you know, very early on deciding to give away 1% of our company's revenues as a type of earth tax, um, a practice that we still do today. And so that's given us a huge amount of... Um, knowledge and uh i guess um yeah friends in in that space that we care about so much under which to help us kind of understand our impact and understand what good we can do by supporting others um so i'd say you know first and foremost our, our not-for-profit you know community is is probably you know primarily you know one of the the, the core partnerships i'd like to talk about um i think there are other organizations that kind of um bind companies together you know, in this sort of, you know, sense of partnership. So we're not a company that does collabs or does this sort of idea of like, how can we 
stick my brand on your brand and we all make a bit more money for six months and we go back to doing what we we're doing beforehand you know we're we're, we're an early adopter of the b corp um uh, certification and movement in north america and we're, we're you know proud certified b corp um we're a founding member of one percent for the planet again that that one percent earth tax that we impose upon ourselves um but one of the stories i, I love to recount again rick was you know fortunately fortunately the inside this this story this he told me the story it's just stuck with me over the years and really you know it, it was about the formation of the sustainable apparel coalition which today represents i think over 40 percent of the world's textile and footwear kind of you know businesses you know so it's a huge group of companies that are collaborating around kind of reducing impact and i describe it like a huge Wikipedia for sustainability for a company. When you join, you agree to tip your information in anonymously, but you get the, the wisdom of that kind of collective that kind of rolled up and, and tools and sort of stuff. But how it started was of all companies to reach out to want to do some work with Patagonia, Walmart reached out to us. So, you know, big, able kind of Walmart company. And they said, we'd love to work with you on sustainability. And, um, you know, I think when the company kind of like got that request, it was a bit like, well, this is a unusual request and, and maybe a, a big opportunity. What the people at Walmart and Rick and the folks at Patagonia decided to do um, was to send out a letter to, I think, you know, I think it was something like the top 20 American companies at the time to come together and kind of talk about, you know, what we could do actually to reduce our impact. And they sent out an invitation on a letterhead that had Patagonia's logo and Walmart's logo at the top of the letterhead, um, you know, to, to make these invitations. And Rick recounts, you know, that he, he's sure the reason why most of them came was just, just such an unusual kind of um, pairing of, of brands to be making that request. Um, but that first meeting and that first kind of get together of those companies and, and representatives is what led to, you know, this, this amazing organisation that's serving so many today. You know, so I think Patagonia has always been in the business of collaborating and, and partnerships when it's in service of its mission, in service of doing good, um, rather than in service of, you know, increasing our, you know, our sales or, or profit for any kind of given period. Yeah, brilliant. And it's about creating movements of change, isn't it? Finding yeah. collaborators, bringing them along the way, seeing where you can actually forward that, that movement. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, can you tell, can you um, share with our listeners um, some examples of Patagonia's activism? Sure. Well, um, you know, we've, in my time here, you know, our, our environmental impact in Australia has grown, you know, substantially, which is just something I'm so proud to be, you know, part of. Um, you know, we've supported many Australian, um, you know, environmental issues, and we've actually found that that, um, through working with our partners, through really kind of, you know, getting behind some unpopular, I guess, and, you know, ignored issues, we've been able to kind of really make a difference, which is fantastic. You mentioned the Takana film um, a little earlier, that, that we made that film in service and support of the fight the Bob Brown Foundation has been leading for many years in protecting the northwestern part of Tasmania and looking to secure world heritage protection for, you know, old growth temperate rainforest down there. That film we made had a wonderful reception both here in Australia but also around the world and led to a petition calling for the protection of that space which had over 225,000 signatories and we were able yeah huge and we were able to get that that petition tabled at the Tasmanian State Parliament and at the time it was the biggest petition 
ever tabled for an environmental reason in that state's history. Um, sadly, the government has yet to protect that area, but our support for, for the Bob Brown Foundation and, you know, and protection of that area continues. Uh, we had another wonderful campaign a couple of years back that's kind of going still today in protection for the Great Australian Bite. You know, there was a number of, you know, oil drilling exploration permits, you know, right out in the middle of nowhere where no one can see, um, but with huge potential for things to go wrong. Um, and we joined forces with, you know, um, a great suite of not-for-profits and locals down in this remote part of Australia to try and, you know, stop the start you know, digging these deep, you know, deep sea wells off in the, in the Southern Ocean, which should something go wrong, you know, you know, capping them off and stopping the oil spurning out or the gas spurning out could be really, really, um, terrible, I guess, devastating. Um, you know, we picked a fight with, I guess, a, an oil company. If you're going to pick a fight with any of them, we picked a Norwegian state-owned kind of, you know, somewhat progressive kind of energy company called Equinor. And we put a lot of effort into... Um, really you know challenging them and asking them to you know pull out from their exploration you know in the area and after many months of trialing trying and you know different actions and act, you know catalyzing and supporting you know locals around the country to really kind of you know stand up and fight for this you know um somewhat you know ubiquitous and important part of our, our wilderness um you know we thought we lost and then some months later you know Equinor decided to quietly kind of you know rescind their their, their drilling permit and go off and do something else. So there's been some really great wins, um, but what we find with every win that just kind of reveals the next step of the next you know, thing that needs to be kind of done. So we're, we're calling for, you know, significant, you know, protections to be put in place in the Great Australian Bite, protect that, that important marine wilderness forever, not just from you know, this round of oil companies who are, who are looking to drill. Um, so, you know, there's no shortage of, um, places where the company's, you know, efforts and funds and, and energy can go um, support, you know, in support in this neck of the woods. And what strikes me from what you say, Dane, is a lot of what you do is action. Uh, activism is action, right? But then rolled up in all of that is partnership and marketing because, you know, you find partners, you find collaborators, your customers, you know, Patagonia fans mm -hmm. become collaborators when they sign petitions and, you know, show up. Um, doing doing what you invite them to do and that becomes your marketing as well it's not a look at us aren't we great it's an invitation to join us and help create change and um, for me that that's why you know and I'm sure you get sick of that tag of the poster child for purpose but but that is why you are is because you're just your head down bum up doing it we're an unconventional business and it's really hard sometimes to fit what we do in traditional business structures and terms. Um, but, you know, again, like I always really try and use plain language because it isn't, it isn't complicated. It's just we're fortunate to work for people who own this company who want us to do more than just sell the clothes. They want us to figure out how we can use the business as a tool for environmental protection. You know, and in, when you have that sort of mandate and a lot of latitude into which how you might explore to do that, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, today we've had the news um, about the IPCC coming out and saying that, you know, 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming means we're going to lose whole countries, particularly in the Pacific Island. So, you know, we're going to need a lot more than government to do something. We can't rely on government to do things. Uh, it seems that business has the means um, 
and the and the scale to actually step up and do something on that. So with that in mind, what what do you have any words of advice to other business leaders who are either starting with starting a new company today or who are leading companies? Um, you know, what advice do you have for them in terms of their purpose journey, if it's something on their radar and how they can use their business as a vehicle to create something positive? Well, um, I can only speak from my own experience and, you know, I'm sure that I've got a lot, I feel like there's a lot more, you know, learning and kind of experiences I need to gain to, to really give, you know, legitimate advice to others on that front. Um, but I think it all starts with, you know, what you know is right and what you kind of care about, you know, and, you know, you don't, you don't have to look far to, to see things in your life that you care about in, in, that are people, that are places that, you know, um, are more than just stuff that you buy. And, you know, you don't have to look far to see people who have prioritised stuff in their life to sort of see, you know, a sense of unhappiness that creeps in over time. So, you know, we sort of put, you know, you know, nature and people and planet in the sort of same bucket and kind of go, hey, we're all interdependent. Um, you know, how do I start, you know, with the small choices I can make in my own life or with the influence that I have in the positions that we find ourselves, um, you know, act. And I think one of the biggest challenges I have here is not so much, you know, you know, what am I allowed to do? But, you know, I find myself working for a company that, you know, expects so much, you know, and I have a short time here, I'm sure, you know, so what am I going to do with that opportunity that sort of sits in front of me? So I'd ask others to, to, to look around them and say, you know, what, what opportunities do I have? Um, you know, certainly, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to, to, to make, to bring change to organisations. It's not easy um, to, you know, be radical. But I think it all starts with, you know, small stuff and, you know, it starts on kind of building trust and, and um, you know, building a, a helping people bring people along with you, you know, in, in what, what you want to do. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, especially today with the younger generation that um, you do, you, you do something from the heart, you do something with love, you, you stand for something that you truly care about and people will follow. They will. And I think, you know, I'd sort of like sort of share this thought around marketing because I think, you know, marketing is what people see about your company. That's, that's all it is. It's what you choose to tell about yourself and hope that people listen, you know, and our company's marketing has always been founded on telling stories about things we care about, whether it be nature or our impact or our efforts to kind of, you know, reduce it or protect nature. I'm really convinced that modern advertising digital data targeting, you know, artificial intelligence, consumer psychology, they've created this environment where, you know, companies are in the business of unlimited growth and they've got to find ever new ways to get people to buy their stuff. You know, so it's this horrible kind of, you know, cycle in which we find ourselves, but it's a relatively new one. You don't have to go back far in time to see products that were designed to be repaired. You know, that repairing your washing machine was the norm, not throwing it out and going to Harvey Norman and buying a new one. You know, so I think, what I've learned at Patagonia is that there is another way. And when a business exists for more than just making profit and legitimately lives up to that mission, like doesn't just write it down and just keep going on with what it was doing, um, then people who care about the same things ultimately reward it with their customer over the competition. And we see that market, you know, to use those traditional business terms, growing. There are more and more people who care about the impact we're having on the planet, the legacy and the world that we're leaving for, for our children. 
and one of the most kind of I guess optimistic things you know to counterpoint you know this awful kind of climate report that's out today is that those values are strongest the younger the demographic you know so when we talk to school kids when we talk to teenagers and university students the urgency to act and the kind of like the simplicity of the problem is just you know it's just so much more prominent a problem in that in that age group so you know i think when you have that kind of like um you know relationship with your customers and they see it's real and they're rewarding you and you build a relationship over a lifetime they're going to tell their friends about it and that is how you know i think you know those starting a business you know or those who want to you know build a brand can really kind of go well am i building something here that's going to last you know five years and i can sell out or i can move on to my next job and i'll you know tick that box on those metrics or am i kind of coming in service of something that's going to be here long after i go and have i left a little bit better than than i found it brilliant and you take you that you you walk away with some pride with that dane thank you so much for joining us really really enjoyed learning um more about patagonia and um and i certainly look forward to continuing to support the company thanks thank you very much for having me Thanks for listening to this episode of the For Love and Money podcast. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into the purpose movement, visit us at thecauseeffect.com.au. And remember, doing good is good for business. So if you're not doing good, then what are you doing?